Good morning, everybody. It's Jeff Goldberg for the Sales Pro Network. I am a sales coach and trainer, and I founded the Sales Pro Network as a place where salespeople can come and network, learn, earn, and also to elevate the profession of sales. Uh, I am committed to sales being the type of profession it truly can be. You know, so many people give us a bad name, and I'm here to say it doesn't have to be that way. You can sell with integrity and still make a ton of money. And as you may know, every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, I bring you a live interview or a training, and the live interviews are always with somebody who can add value to the profession of sales. And today's no exception, my friends. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Edward Henry. Good morning, Edward. How are you? I'm doing great today, Jeff. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to see you, my friend. Uh, could you maybe give us the two-minute version of your background? You know, what brought you up to this point? And then we'll get into talking about sales and sales training. Sure. I, I've always been a salesperson since the day I was 17, believe it or not. I, I started by selling vacuum cleaners in high school and um, and just did nothing but sales my whole life. So it's been, you know, we, we worked from those days to advertising, got into tech stuff. And because I'm a sales nerd, I, I really embraced technology, CRM and and really wanted to bring some new new vision or i guess you could say a new way of selling to the market space got it and so you founded your company uh economics economics well, economics is our is our new product and it's our new way of selling and i've been blasting it everywhere talking about everything but our company is edward henry company and um we are located in whitby ontario just outside of just literally 30 minutes outside of toronto and uh, we we started our company in 2009, and and we we started as a sales training company. We became more of a sales, I guess you could say, cons consulting technology and training onboarding. We we just like to find every solution that a company is struggling with. Got it. I'm sorry, I'm slightly distracted. I'm getting a message that we're not actually broadcasting live to Facebook. Uh oh. Well, we are going to LinkedIn and YouTube. I'm sorry if you guys are on Facebook uh, and can't see us. We'll figure that out for next time. If you're watching us live, by the way, please do say hello in the comments. And if you have any questions for Edward, please put them in and I'll share them with him. And if you're watching us on the replay, please put replay in the comments. So let's get to the questions, Edward. Um, what do you think are the most common selling challenges that sales organizations are facing today? Well, well, today, it's, I think since 2006, every company has been hit with something that they were unprepared for. And I call it the uh, technology pandemic. Just like any other pandemic, we don't have an adoption strategy for how we're going to make sure that everybody adopts or adapts to this challenge. And if you think about 2006, social media, smartphones, and CRM became emerged as really as part of our sales culture. Now, before that, many of us salespeople struggle with writing emails. So, I mean, at this point, it was kind of like we created massive sales waste like we never seen before. I mean, it was a challenge to adopt. If you think about before 2006, it was like, we sold and we sold. Now we have to sell and then learn about technology since 2006. So all of a sudden, two aspects of sales tech, of sales activity separated. Here's how we somebody would teach us how to sell and somebody would teach us how to use technology. But nobody ever taught us how to sell with technology. And that's the difference. Hmm. Interesting. Got it. By the way, good morning, Greg Kettner, one of my favorite people in the world. So I'm, I'm guessing that, like me, you find so many companies out there speak to people like you and me, and what they're looking for is really a quick fix. Is there a quick fix in sales training? No, no, there isn't at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think what most companies are really looking for at the end of the day, they want transparency and they want things to happen when they're supposed to happen. Because what we fail, what we're really selling as salespeople is promises. Everything we say to a customer is a promise. We either declare to do something or we don't. And customers hear that in everything that we say. 
So we have to take that with some form of integrity that if I say this to you, whether that includes I send you a proposal on Tuesday or I'm going to send a task. And one of the things that we fail a lot as salespeople is to really hold to the level of what we promise our customers. And, and that's the reason why so many companies have put such an investment into customer service departments. They have become a defense for a broken system of how we sell. We don't represent ourselves properly. We, we don't have any accountability to our task. A matter of fact, we, if you look at things, we have become more common to the excuses of everything of what's going on and why we can't do what we're going to do, whether it's the economy, it's the pandemic, it's the recession. It doesn't matter what it is. But the reality is the accountability of today's salespeople is, is really challenged. And corporations or companies don't even, don't even try to address that problem. We have massive sales waste, poor customer engagement, lack of pipeline transparency. And the truth is, we, we have not te- taught people how to sell. We taught people how to convince. And there's a three-letter word in the beginning of that word, convince. Got it. Got it. Uh, what, what is, um, uh, what's the term you use? M- massive sales what? Massive sales waste. What is massive sales waste? I, I read that in one of your articles, but I didn't, uh, I didn't quite catch it. It's everything that we do that doesn't involve selling. In other words, if I'm working a 50-hour work week or a 40-hour work week, and if that activity, if most of that activity is administration, using CRM, it's everything that doesn't involve you know, contacting prospects, selling account management, whatever it is that generates revenue. And the problem is we can't, we can't get rid of sales waste, but we can reduce sales waste by managing our time properly. And that's one of the biggest challenges because, I mean, if you look at even manufacturing, back in the day, Toyota realized, hey, we got this massive manufacturing waste, and it really came down to time waste. So they started reorganizing equipment to make it so that they can be more efficient based on time. We have to take the same approach as sales. We call it economics. It's the way that we brand it, is that we actually found a way to work with our clients and say, hey, you don't need to spend more money to make more money. You need to just change the way you're doing things. Reduce your sales waste, increase your sales time. Not only does it do that, it also reduces your sales cycle. There's a number of efficiencies that come from it that we're not even paying attention to because all we think about is generate more revenue, generate more revenue, rather than change the way we're selling. Interesting. You brought up something else that that, uh, I I hear about all the time. And in my observations of salespeople, it's a huge challenge, time management. Any tips on being, being a more effective time manager? Yeah, keep trying. I mean, keep it's got to be it's got to be the primary focus of what you're doing. You need to identify everything that's in your way. What are the bottlenecks? It really comes down to getting organized more than anything. You know, we got calendars, right? We got calendars. They got all these these nice spots that can really identify what we can do and when we can do it. But if you look at people's calendars, it's mostly meetings. Right. It's rarely ever the task we have to complete. And you look at how many tasks we have to complete for our customers. Right. We promise things all the time. We have a lot of activity to manage. And if we don't track that, organize it, well, then we are, it's loose. I mean, if you look at even the most common elements of rules of engagement that even, even organizations employ, like even the military, they say there's two common failures to rules of engagement or anything that you try to employ as a system of practice. One is your rules are excessively loose or they're too restrictive. So really taking the time to identify everything and, and label it out in a way that you can manage it. So one of the things that we really that we really focus on with people is, look, if you're going to be successful in selling, you got to do what we did way back when we cared. Because we usually say, you know what, you're, there's two types of salespeople, those that care and those that care less. Right. And the ones that care the, in my history, I've seen the best salespeople be the ones that want to get it right for the customer. They just care. 
They want to take the time to make sure they get what the customer wants. They're taking the time to plan, taking the time to prep, taking the time to sell and taking the time to deliver. Those four steps literally is how we used to sell way back in the day. And somehow, once we get a signed deal, there's no ownership of the promises that we've made. So consumers see this now. Consumers are not dumb to it. Consumers are educated to our process. And if we don't change the way that we're doing that in a transparent way, we will continue to have this mess that we have, a massive sales waste, poor organization, and rarely ever do we have this integrity that people are looking for from salespeople. As you already said, you know, you, you talked about the image of what we've been since, what, 2,000 years since they called us peddlers, right? There are salespeople like us that care to do the right thing. And then there are salespeople that care about money, right? So, I mean, organizations have to care about the same things as well. Yeah. One of the things I find, uh, I do a lot of coaching in my, in my practice. And uh, one of the things I find, because I always inspect people's calendars, I almost never find prospecting time on their calendar. And to me, it's the most important thing you can do every day. Why is it not? I, I'm a big fan of everything goes on your calendar. I call that calendarization. But I never, ever see the most important thing, which is prospecting for new business. And of course, you've got to do a million other important things. But why, do, why are salespeople so resistant to prospecting? Well, nobody wants to call anybody they don't know, right? I mean, even 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 experienced salespeople, they know it's necessary. You get used to it. And I mean, it's fortunately, prospecting is one of those skills. If you don't put enough time in your calendar regularly, you'll get rusty. And the longer you, you take away from prospecting, the harder it is to do. It's something you always have to have. I mean, I, I recommend that everybody should always be doing three to five to six hours a week minimum of prospecting time organize it, figure out who you're going to call, set it up in a way that it doesn't create massive sales waste. Know who you're calling and why, right? Like when we call people, like, do we really take the time to understand our objective in the beginning? Why am I calling you? Right. And, and not only that, if I know why I'm calling you, what is my objective? Am I getting off the phone with my objective established or not? Like, I mean, we rare, we don't plan or take the time to plan every call, every activity. Then it's it goes back to that old thing that remember Yogi Bear used to say, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So salespeople often end up in the wrong place. I got it. So tell me a little bit about your book, CTB. What does CTB mean? Uh, it was actually an acronym for Cut the Bullshit. <laughs> That's perfect. And you, so you wrote an entire book about cutting the bullshit? Pretty much. You know what? I, I used to sell like every other sales guy that really didn't care. I mean, I'm gonna be, I'll be straight about it. I didn't take the time to prep. I didn't care about my customers. I cared about my commissions. Something changed as I gotten older. You know, it just, I just started to recognize that the best way to sell a customer was to work with the customer, actually partner with the customer, like dating, right? And I talk about that in CTB, right? Like it, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I'm gonna use the word supposed to do, not that I always do it in dating, but if I do what I'm supposed to do in dating, I will be successful in selling. Because we naturally do that exactly the way we're supposed to sell. As a matter of fact, if you look at how we date, like the way that we date, the actual philosophy that we approach to dating is the exact same philosophy naturally that we do in selling. I mean, we prospect, we look for our ideal prospect, we take our time to actually think about who we want to date. And then we actually plan the date. I've seen men plan dates and they couldn't plan sales calls, but they plan dates. They plan where they're going to go, what they're going to wear, what they're going to ask, who the prospect might be also interested in, who are their competition. They'll do no more planning for a date than they will for any customer. And if you think about it, 
my date is usually evaluating risk and reward no different than my customers. We, we evaluate risk and reward in every decision that we make. Like we literally do. Even toilet paper, when it's cheap, we evaluate the risk. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, right? So that relationship concept all the way. If we take the time, I'll talk about it in a bit, but the five rules of engagement that we use for selling is the same five rules that you use for dating. Don't rush. Take your time. Enjoy the experience. Set mutual expectations. And by the way, we don't do this in selling, but we do it in dating. Call you at seven. See you in the morning. We even tell each other, like, you know what? We don't like it when you're late. We don't like this. We set rules back and forth that we both have to go through through the relationship process. But we never do that in selling. We never say to the customer at the beginning of the relationship, these are the things I'm going to need from you to reach your expectation. A matter of fact, we rarely take the time to really service and find out what the customer's goals or expectations are. We just want to make sure that they understand how our product aligns for them rather than focus on what they're trying to achieve. And by the way, the value of their expectation is usually greater than the value of what we're selling. So it's easier to establish our value when we actually approach the customer based on what they care about. And then number three, managing touch points, keeping touch points to a minimum. How many times we've seen salespeople call other salespeople asking for things they should have got before, right? Not respecting your time. I'm not planning. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So if I take my time, I don't rush, and I literally make sure I manage my touch points effectively. And number four is one of my favorite. Every time I talk to clients about number four, don't give the customer work. Like this is a rule. Don't give the customer work. You want to create a bottleneck? Give the customer work right? You want to get rid of your customer? Give them work. I mean, it's really simple. And the way I ask questions, the way I interact with the customer, the way I make the customer's experience, I mean, it's got to be like point and click, just like that. The customer, we have to make it so easy for the customer. Right? I mean, is that not what we were, we were always taught to do in the very beginning when we're sold? Make it easy for the customer. Make it enjoyable for the customer. Don't make it work for the customer. And my favorite number five also is, well, I shouldn't say also, number five, very critical mistake a lot of people make is not setting next steps Im immediately after every touch point, but more importantly, making sure the customer, keeping on the customer's radar, it's not your customer's job to remember. The customer doesn't care to remember. I care more than the customer to remember. So it's my job to make sure this is simple and easy for the customer all the way to the sale. I found the five rules are more important than five steps because the five, whether it's five steps, seven steps, that relationship process, we've heard it for a hundred years. We know, we know exactly that education. Yeah. I love so many things that you said there. Uh, first of all, I often equate sales and dating. Does she like me? Does she like me enough to go out with me again? Does she like me enough to close the deal? I mean, it really is very, very similar. Uh, and I, I, I love what you said about coming from service. I mean, it's the old Zig Ziglar thing, which is, you know, serving is selling. Stop yeah. pitching, start serving. Uh, it, it's a different come from, you know, I'm pointing to my ample COVID gut, you know, your come from truly has to be, how can I best help you as opposed to please buy what I've gotten, you know, if it doesn't exactly fit, buy it anyways, because I need to, it, the, the, I say prospects can smell commission breath and it, it, it's a big turnoff to them. But that service thing is so important. It's a, just a different mindset and, and making it easy to do business with you. I, I'm constantly stunned at how difficult people make it for somebody to say yes and actually do business with them. It's like, make it easy. If somebody's going to give you their trust and their money, make it easy for them to do that. I'm with you a million percent. And I'm guessing, and I hope you'll expand on this, eco economics teaches you to do that. What is economics and, and how is that different from most selling systems? 
So I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked that question because when I looked at sales as a whole, right, I used to see all these things that would make me crazy. Like I actually wanted to fix them. And, and for the most time, for 10 years, and I'll, I'll say this, 10 years ago, I had this idea about reducing sales waste and improving profitability. I didn't realize how much work was involved in that aspect. So economics became, how can I give something that companies are looking for? So first of all, I took our traditional sales process and I looked at things that I felt just needed to be done better. And thank God that there was people before me like Zig Ziglar, like, like Neil Rackham, people that put together some really intelligent, I guess, say innovation to selling, true sales enablement, right? So I was able to grab off of that stuff and be able to, you know, to feed into addressing. And I recognized one thing. I was reading a document way back in the day. Uh, we're going to say about a couple of years ago that changed the way I seen everything. And it was not about selling. It was, it was written by a retired Brigadier General named Mark Martins. And he wrote a document back when he was a major about the implementation of rules of engagement in the military. And he said one thing in the very beginning that most of these models failed when it came to the cognitive levels of stress because their models were focused on controlling behavior rather than reducing the effects of human behavior. So I got thinking about this when it came to training. And that's how we came up with these five rules that we use for training adoption, CRM adoption, the ones that I just shared with you. And we found a way to use this to be able to address all of those problems. And that's what we call economics. So we have gotten so far into changing what people don't like about CRM that we, we found a way to make sure that we could create uh, performance-based learning from CRM, meaning what you put into it will determine what you should be learning. And that's what we call economics. Got it. And speaking of CRM, did you, uh, I'm a big proponent of using CRM. Do you have a favorite one that you recommend and, and how can people uh, best use their CRM? I do. My favorite one is the one the customer's working with. Now, I'll tell you why I say that, because one of the things that we, we used to do, I mean, we became a Zoho partner back in the day. We looked at becoming Salesforce. And we wanted to sell CRM. We thought we thought we should be CRM experts. And something occurred to me one day, the best way to help a client is to make is help them to make their technology work for them. And very few people do that because the one thing that happened in selling is if, if I have a selling problem, I either have a process problem, I should change my CRM. If I have a selling problem, I need better salespeople, right? But rarely do we fix what's already really broken. And in CRM, I mean, CRM, the problem with CRM is just like, imagine, a, imagine QuickBooks or ACPAC if there was no general accepted accounting principles. What would that look like? Would we have consistent accounting? No. We wouldn't have consistent financial reporting. The problem with CRM is we developed software and because there was no accepted management protocols of selling, we all just kind of decided our own rules of it. And then we have these massive adoption problems because people really don't understand how to sell with CRM. What is my workflow? So we, we really started focusing on fixing those problems for clients, making their existing technologies work, whether it's a certain LMS a certain CRM, and we we found ways to make them both integrate together. Why would you have a learning management system and not have it integrate with the very tool that that determines the metrics of your performance? Doesn't make sense to me. No. So we've been doing we've been doing a lot of integration like that, and actually solving real problems with it for our clients. I'm always stunned. Uh, often when I do management training, you know, sales management training. <coughs> excuse me. I'll start out and ask, you know, what's the biggest challenge in managing your salespeople? And you know, quite often I hear, oh compliance. I can't get them to use the CRM. And I'm always stunned with a manager who says, I can't get my salespeople to use the CRM. It's like, who do they work for? And how, how, why, why do they not see how it's going to help them? 
That statement says the very same thing that we talked about earlier when I said, hey, I read this report from Mark Martins. Mark Martins said, if your model is developed on control and behavior, when I say I can't get you, I can't make people use it, then you are literally, you're focusing on the wrong model. You're already set up to fail. There's no way it's going to work. If you think I can't make them work it, well, then you don't understand adoption, right? Adoption is setting up the training and the application so they adopt it, not so you force them. If you're right, if you, there's a way, if you, if, if I can't sell you on how to use this and how it's going to make you more money, it's because it's not. Yeah. So, so, so often it's just, here it is. It's a tool for you. Go get it. Uh, but they, they have, look, I, I don't think I could live without my CRM. Uh, and I, I'm with you. I don't care which one you use. I have a couple that I like more than others. And I think there are some that are incredibly popular that are way overblown, way overpriced. But whatever you're using, take advantage of it. Uh, you know, look, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough that I remember the days when, you know, we had little file cabinets with, you know, A, B, C, D, and that's where that's where everything lived. CRM is a life changer. Every organization, every large organization I've ever worked with, the top producers are always power users of their CRM. It's crazy to not be using that. Well, it goes back to the same thing. You need you need direction, right? If I'm if I'm dealing with a hundred different prospects, or whether it's fifty prospects, how many accounts? How am I really going to manage all that? You know, the moment I started treating myself like I'm going to mess up, and started really being accountable to organ, organizing myself or put myself in a position to win. See, talent is arrogance. You even look at sports. Some of the best athletes are the ones that know how to play position. Right. And if you don't put yourself in a position to score or to win, well, then it doesn't matter how talented you are. Brilliant. So why is accountability so important when training and coaching salespeople? Well, I think salespeople, salespeople have the least amount of liability in the entire sales equation. Customer and the employer have the greatest sense of liability. I mean, usually if I mess up as a sales rep, my either my customer suffers or my company suffers. And rarely do I ever suffer. Right. And we have this situation where we think we get great talent. We got to like and kind of find some way of harnessing it rather than really building the culture or the team. Accountability has always been this hard thing to do with sales reps. If I can't establish accountability with my sales reps, how am I going to establish accountability with my customers? If I can't teach my sales reps to slow down and don't rush. And by the way, if salespeople, um, if salespeople are rushing, guess who else is in that same mental rush? Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, I, I'm I'm constantly surprised by what I think is true is not necessarily true. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, I was debriefing with a client about two or three years ago and speaking to all the managers about, you know, we had done a year and a half long program. And, you know, what did you like? What didn't you like? What could I have done better? What blah, blah, blah. And to a person, they told me that the thing that they liked best was that their salespeople now have more confidence never once occurred to me that what I do gives salespeople confidence. It's very useful uh, to, to hear stuff like that. And what I hear from my coaching clients, which I didn't think was the case, is they love the accountability piece most because I end every sales coaching session with them making a commitment to me to how much prospecting they'll be, do between now and the next call. Not how much I tell them to do, by the way. It's just whatever you're going to do, you guarantee me that you're absolutely going to do it. And I have ways to you know, get them to commit to it. And then I hold them accountable on the next call. And they tell me that more than anything else I do with them, it's the accountability, knowing that they have somebody that they've got, that's going to say, did you do what you said you were going to do? Because look, I'm a very disciplined guy and I, I'm guessing you are too, but I will lie to myself sometimes. I'll never lie to you. I'd rather break my arm than break my word to you. But 
I will lie to myself on occasion. And I think the accountability piece is, is crucial. Um, what methods do you practice to make sure that the training that you're doing for a company is effective? Because so often training is not effective. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've, we've done is like, look, if I'm going to train you on a certain piece, I don't want to get up there and entertain you and tell a great story and you leave and say, wow, that was amazing. What I want to do is I'm, I'm not going to be able to make anything stick in that training, but I can tell you how to make it apply. Right. So the adoption matter is really showing them what they need to do when they leave during that training session, what they need to focus on, how they need to apply that and specifically how they need to apply it. Too many times sales trainers fall in love with their voice like I used to. And we would go through that rant of, of, of how great this selling, like, in other words, we just go through our traditional, this is prospecting. This is, this is what you do, you know, and instead of telling people what they need to do, tell them how they need to apply it, which is an entirely different way of, of training. And too many times I used to watch traditional sales trainers get up there and they give a rant about the traditional sales process, how it works, what you do, what's my pitch lines, ways to do it. But rarely, how do you do it in what situations? How do you apply this application of selling? Can you give an example? Sure. So, I mean, uh, some of the, in other words, where are the areas we're getting beat? So, not, like, I'll go back to the to the things. I mean, when we when we talk about those, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the five steps. So, we went and broke up the traditional sales process and we called it, we call it five rules and five steps. And the five steps were really simply the same traditional sales process that everybody uses, except for we renamed it. We call it first step is prospecting. You can't get away from that. And by the way, prospecting usually eats up about a good 40 to 50% of anybody's training content if they're really taking time to do prospecting because prospecting is literally its own science. And then discovery. Now in discovery, I mean, you look anywhere, companies never focus on true qualification and discovery framework. Meaning, what do you really need to know to be successful with your client? And discovery is just like dating. If you don't take the time to be intimate with your customer, then you're not intimate. And if you want to know the true probability, and here's my problem with CRM, the true probability of selling is based on how much information you know about your customer, not what sales stage you're in, not when your close one date is. It's based on how much information you know with your customer. So what I do is when we're going through those five steps, whether it's prospect, discovery, solution, agreement, and the last part, we call it adoption. I'll tell you why I call that last stage adoption. Because I used to hate the moment I got the agreement or the moment someone gets the agreement, nobody, there is no ownership going on to keep those promises, all those things I said I would do. Let's really look at when does the relationship start? It didn't start at prospecting. It started at close. You know, it's funny. When I asked Joy to marry me, I didn't say, if you say yes, I will maintain this marriage well. Right? She wanted growth. And that's a strategy. And rarely when we close a deal do we refocus our strategy and how do we really address the customer? How do we own our, how do we literally make sure that they see? And that's another thing. I used to watch salespeople never write stuff. You know, customers want to see you work. Like as a sales rep, when you try to hide the work from the customer, then you hide the value. Right. So really taking the time to show the customer, what are they paying for? Show them that sales process. Tell the customer, listen, when I send you proposals, I'll send them on time because I know my competitors won't. Right. So I'll say all the things where I know my competitors are going to fail. So they see what I'm doing right up to the point of close. And then I'll make sure Then I have to make sure if I want to turn this into to more continuous revenue, greater account penetration, more importantly, customer referrals. 
I have to make sure I do what I say I'm going to do. And if I got a problem with that, then I shouldn't be talking. I'm either a salesperson or a liar. Hmm. And we got enough liars. Yes, we certainly do. So there was something else I saw in, in uh, I believe, in, in a LinkedIn post, and I didn't quite understand. What is the sales control? What is sales control plan management? And what does that have to do with the missing CRM experience? Well, the reason why we call it the missing CRM experience, because the thing that we felt has been missing from CRM, and a number of people have said it, is the relationship. Like there's customer management, but where's the relationship, right? And if you look at when I call control plan, that element or that concept came to me We'll go back to Toyota. Now, in manufacturing, man, man, uh, managing productivity, one of the most common ways that a lot of quality engineers or many people manufacturer would manage manufacturing would be through what they call control plans or PPAPs. And what it was was a plan that was utilized so that they could determine or they would have like, you know, your typical Six Sigma, how many defects would come out. And then now we got to shut off line, retool, and do the same things that they would ask from ISO. You know, what was the root cause? What was the failure? You know? And, and give that proper reporting. That same element of how they manage production and kept that quality, we literally took that same approach and we created what was called sales control plan management. And it's an element of economics. So the way we powered economics was all the information of how you use CRM will determine one of two things, how you manage your sales efforts and what you should be learning. So we, we created a sales pulse from that data which literally shows you when opportunities are going cold, when you're missing engagement, when you have to start working your customers from a C to an A. So we have these relationship metrics, just like dating, right? That actually show how I'm, whether not controlling engagement, but holding accountable engagement, meaning we're partnering. And if I'm doing it properly, you should be an A customer all the way across the sales pulse line. And if you're not, it's because I'm missing touch points or missing activity or or I'm just losing engagement with you, just like dating. So we created three different levels, right? Like an A, B, C. A is my is like the typical date that I want that is that is totally accountable to me all the way through the relationship process. And if I follow the five rules properly, then I can then I have the tools to hold engagement. Your B is kind of like B and C's are kind of like my 16-year-old girlfriends, right? Like they would barely ever pick up the phone for me. You know, so I mean it's you have to go, you know, these here statuses really kind of spelled out understanding the pulse so that I make the right decision make decision making process. A matter of fact, one of the things I've learned in that document from Brigadier General Mark Martins was our decision making process under cognitive levels of stress is what really affects the way we sell. It affects whether we take the time to plan, affects whether we slow ourselves. That's why slowing ourselves down and not rushing is so it is the number one mistake in selling. You know, how many times have you and I even, no matter how experienced we are, go in an appointment and we're just like, bam, bam, we're working, we're working. And we leave, we're like, why did I not ask that? Why did I not do this? Why did I not mention that? And it's because I didn't take time to stick with my plan. I was rushing. And when I'm rushing, there's always someone else rushing at the same time because every customer rushes. And if I don't slow down, neither does the customer. If I'm not enjoying it, neither does the customer. And that, and we literally, if we want to be great at this, we can't take customers off. Like, like you hear, we can't take days off. No, you can't take customers off. Right? You have to have this singular approach for every single customer. Have I Do I have a plan for this customer? Have I prepped? Right, And when it comes time for these meetings, take my time, slow down, and make sure I remember what I'm going in for and cover every aspect of that time. Don't think about the clock. Think about the customer. Yeah, just brilliant. Uh, 
uh, it, it doesn't happen often, but there have been a few occasions during my career where uh, I've walked out of a sales call and go, oh, that was going so well. What happened? And I, I can think of one particular example uh, where I was referred in by a highly trusted source. Uh, the prospect reached out to me and said, this guy who I highly respect, you know, he loves you and I got to meet with you. And I kind of went in cocky and I didn't follow the same sales process that I teach the salespeople on a regular basis. Uh, I, you know, I skipped a few steps, certainly I skipped the rapport building piece. I go, oh, he already knows who I am. He reached out to me. This is going to be an easy one. Didn't get the deal. And when I actually stopped and thought about it, I said, I didn't, I just didn't do what I know I was supposed to do. And so often it's right in front of you, but we don't do those basic things that we know we need to do because we're in such a rush. Uh, I, 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 I often say I don't like to use cliches, except I seem to use a lot of them, so I guess I do. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. If, if, you, if you're trying to rush to get to your next prospect, they may, may not be there when you get there. Talk, take your time with people, because it really does, uh, you know, look, so many things have changed in, in the 49 years since I started selling, but some things haven't, and people still do business with people that they both like and trust, and of the two, the trust is more important. You can't rush that. It, no. it, bring it back to dating. You know, whether you're a man or a woman or anything else uh, these days, it takes time to develop trust with people and really let your guard down uh, so that you can, you know, be who you are. If you're not going to invest that time in sales, you're going to be uh, you're going to be walking away a lot going, gee, I thought that went so well. What happened? Um, I, I want to go in a different direction now. As, as everybody knows, I think COVID changed everything in almost an instant for salespeople. Uh, suddenly we, we couldn't get appointments. We couldn't see people face to face. And uh, I find that some people are back to face-to-face -face meetings and some are still not ready and may never be. I, I don't know that we're ever going to go 100% back to face-to-face -face meetings. But what do sellers need to do differently when they're selling virtually? How do they establish rapport? How do they conduct a sales call? Are there differences between in-person and virtual or, or no? I think the approach is, I mean, we tell ourselves, like, when I have meetings in person, Right today, when I have meetings in person today, yes, they do go smoother, and they are they feel look the human contact. How, you can't beat it. It, it. This is how we started. This is this is who we are as people. This is not how we are as people, right? But this is how we have to be right now. And you're right. There is going to be a an adoption problem going through. When I look at everything that's happened over the last two years, when you really think about this, we we today right now we struggled with the last two years because we didn't know what to adopt. Rules constantly change. The information changed. We were along for a ride. It's like, where is this going? And everybody had a different story. It was like, it was like, depending which car you in, you were driving in a different direction. But, but these last two years have taught me one thing. If you truly can't identify your sequence throughout the selling process, meaning what is your strategy step by step in the sequence, you will fail. My grandfather back in the day, you know, when I was about 19 years of age, I, my grandfather was just amazing. But he would say things to me, isms, that I never heard from anywhere. Like, uh, if you don't know, if someone, if you don't, if a man isn't winning, you can't trust them. Or, you know, he would just say these crazy things, right? But one of the things he said to me was, go in that washroom. He said, put that lid down. And he said, I want you to figure out a way to skip a step and not make a mess. <laughs> and it hit me. There is nothing that can be achieved without sequence. Nothing. A matter of fact, I remember I went to a quality training way back in the day, and they had this, uh, it was like a quality training on work instructions. And they asked us to write work instructions for a peanut butter and jam sandwich to make one. And everybody failed. And I know you're thinking, well, this is the most basic concept things, but people missed the most simple steps, like take the clip off the bag, open the bag, put your hand 
it opened the bag, put your hand, your right hand, like it needed very specific steps. And we would miss the sequence because it was so natural. And that's the, we can't go into that approach with selling. You need to be humble. Like you really need to be humble. You can't be arrogant in selling. You can't be egotistical in selling. That doesn't do a service for your customer. There's so much information. Nobody can master this. You know, it's funny. Um, Jeff, I heard a quote all my life growing up, right? I grew up in a little place called Sydney, Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. Moved to Ontario when I was about 23 years of age. Ambitious, excited, couldn't wait to like just start my sales career the way that, you know, I wanted to. Because you couldn't do much in a small little community like Cape Breton Island, right? It was just 200,000 people on the whole island. I mean, that that was my growth rate, right? And I wanted to do more of my life, so I moved. I used to hear this statement, and people used to say, you know, when the teacher is ready, the student will appear. Or no, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Did you know, did you ever hear the second part of that quote? I don't think so. So I've heard it my whole life. And I, I'm pretty sure you or anybody in sales would have heard this line. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. There was another part to my quote. And one of my one of my employees said, hey, did you know there's another part to this quote? And I said, no. And then the other part of this quote gave me goosebumps when I heard it. So the full quote, the full quote of this quote was, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But when the student is truly ready, the teacher will disappear. Mm. And that approach in selling has done me a lot. Look, I used to take shortcuts. I used to do a lot of things that every other salesperson may have done. Some people started out the right way and stayed the right way. I didn't. I had to, I had to change my behavior, Right. And the moment I got rid of that arrogance and really had true respect for this profession is when I truly learned what I've learned and, and so much still to learn. Wow. Great stuff. By the way, good morning, Dr. Heffron. Good to see you. Good morning, Fran Call Hebler down in Texas. Uh, if you guys have questions for uh, Edward, please let me know. I want to, I want to move over to prospecting because that's, you mentioned it before. It's, it's crucial for almost every salesperson. What do you find is working well these days in terms of prospecting? Well, I, I find that people who take the time to really focus on learning how to uh, on different ways to pique curiosity and create doubt, really, truly do that, really perfect that art. And by the way, you need that skill all the way through the sales process. Every time the temperature changes, if you're going to ask me, how do I change a C and a B back to an A? Pique curiosity, create doubt, but you need to follow up with something, right? It can't be BS. You need to literally do the work to make sure that you do a thing to keep that engagement on track. Right. If I light a flame on that fire, you know, I got to keep it warm. I got to keep it going. So so the, the skill of peaking curiosity and creating creating doubt is so critically important. But prospecting is a science. Where are where is my first of all, who is my my target prospect? Who is my customer? What what is really my customer? I'm, I had a client. I have a client that does uh, they do artificial grass. And one day I said, I said, who's your customer? And they said, anyone with a lawn. And I said, is that how you date? Right. And, and it's like, who is the specific customer? You know, really taking the time to understand our customer, first of all. Secondly, where's our prospecting pool? Where do we find this customer? Where are the elements of the prospecting pool do we find a customer? We don't take the time to understand our reach. We don't have a strategy for how we treat customers in our primary area, our secondary area, our tertiary area. The amount of the amount, the degree of organization that we have to do in prospecting needs more respect than just picking up the phone and cold calling. It needs a strategy. You need to know your prospect pool. You need to know exactly the elements. You There are so many elements when you're prospecting to be organized. An organizational structure and prospecting is so critical. If you're not organized, you're wasting time. It's not fun and your customer suffers. It's the same thing over again. 
and you just brought up something I, that I posted into the group just the other day. I asked people, what is your ideal client profile? What makes a great prospect for you? And I, I was not totally surprised that so many people said, anybody who can use my service and will pay me. Uh, it, that's a reasonable answer, but that's not really a reasonable answer because that's a profile. That's a prospect. That's not an ideal prospect or an ideal client. People really need to figure out what does my best client look like? Because I'm with you. If you don't, if you can't define it, then how are you going to recognize it when it shows up? And if you're going to prospect, how are you going to target your prospecting towards those particular clients? Look, any, any, organization that has salespeople in the world is a good prospect for you and me, but they aren't an ideal client prospect. They, sure. they may, if they have salespeople, we can train them, we can work with them, but that doesn't make them ideal. I have a very strict set of criteria for who I want to work with and who I'm willing to work with. And I'm guessing that like you, that you sometimes turn down business if you don't feel either that you're right for them or you're right for you. Fortunately, I'm in the position where, I mean, I wasn't always in that position, certainly not when I started out, but I've developed enough uh, skill and enough uh, of a prospecting pipeline that I never have to take business if I don't really think that it's a great match on both sides. And to me, it's not for me, and I, I would assume for you too, it's not about just, oh, you want to work with me? Great. Give me your money. I want to make sure it's going to be a great relationship on both sides. And sometimes I'm absolutely, I've said, you know what? I want to introduce you to my friend who owns the Sandler franchise here on Long Island. He's going to be better for what you have actually need. That doesn't happen often, I'll admit, but I've absolutely referred business his way and he's referred it to me. I'm a big fan of, uh, and I've taught this to my kids for years and years and years. Uh, the acronym is ADTRT. Always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. But if you don't know what you're looking for, how the heck are you going to find it? And you brought up something else, uh, Edward. Uh, and I, I get this question constantly. Does cold calling work? I, you know, it's crazy, the question. I, I, I'm constantly stunned that people are even asking the question. Did cold calling ever work? Will it work when the black hole swallows the sun? What, how, what are your feelings on cold calling? Well, if I don't know you, Jeff, and I want your business, is there another way to make contact with you and pique your curiosity other than cold calling? Is there another? Uh, if, you, if you can get a referral, smoke signals, right? <laughs> Probably not, right? Like, like, what is the strategy here? Look, I hate to say this to all you salespeople that are looking for easier, softer ways. There is none. And if someone sells you a training like never cold call again, read the book. You still got a cold call. There is no way around this. There's no way around the work, right? There just isn't. You need to do the work when it comes to prep. You need to do the work when it comes to research. And if you when you start recognizing you work the client, that's when you sell the client, not when you con the client. And you use some words that really stuck out in that. Use words like anyone, right? But when you talked about how you respect your time, you use the words, use specific words. And salespeople, salespeople look for anyone, right? If salespeople look for anyone, they'll find anyone. They'll never find their customer. Right. I, you're, you're, everything you do has to be specific. It even goes to the 30 second elevator speech. I hear from people. They always say these are the products that I sell rather than these are the problems that I solve. Customers don't complain about products. They complain about problems. And if I don't teach my prospects or my friends or even anybody, my customers, how to listen for my customer then I'll never get those referrals. There is a science to everything and there is a process to everything we do in selling. If you don't take your time to, to take the time to understand it or to even learn it, then you're doing it wrong. 
I, I know you actually uh, make a, 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 I've seen some posts from you. One of the things I do for these interviews is I go to people LinkedIn, people's LinkedIn feed, and you believe that there is not an art to selling, that it's actually a science. Is that correct? It is a science. It is a science. It's a science 100%. A matter of fact, if you believe it's an art, art is used to describe everything. And this comes back to my CTB. You're going to love this. Art is used to describe everything that can't be explained. So we call it bullshit. Okay? So if you want to know what, when you, when you practice the art of selling, you practice the art of bullshit. When you practice the science of selling, you're practicing about planning, researching. You understand the sequence of how a customer is evaluating risk and reward and how I guide them through this partnering relationship of accountability to get to the finish line. Because I told them in the very beginning what my expectation was right after I learned their expectation. And the two of us together. So all of a sudden, when I get to a particular stage and I'm like, hey, Jeff. Remember when I told you you'd have to do a little bit of work and I told you the trade-off? Here it is, because I told you this way back. If you got work to give the customer, don't tell them when the time comes. You tell them in the beginning so they know what's coming, so you can hold them accountable all the way. That's what we would do in any other relationship, if I'm correct, right? I mean, that's how we would handle it. But yet we don't use this science all the way through, and that's why we called it economics. It's the science of selling, not the art of selling. And yeah, we're trying to, we're being bold. And, and, and yes, we know what could come at us for doing that, but we believe in what we're doing and we believe science. It's a science. Selling is a science, not an art. Got it. Now, you mentioned planning a moment ago. What are the six P's? Oh, <laughs> I heard this from a military guy. He said, uh, what was he said? Piss poor planning uh, prevents. What was the last one? I can't uh, remember. <laughs> I've done this before, Edward, where I'll, I'll, I'll take a post that somebody made and they, they don't remember it. It was plan prep prevents piss poor performance. Correct. I loved when I saw it, I, I was crediting. I didn't know that was somebody else's, but I loved it. It was somebody else. And look, I don't care where it comes from. If it's going to help people, it's coming out, right? I mean, sales sales is a mix of information from a whole lot of contributors and a whole lot of people we know no names of. Yeah. yeah. And uh, look, I always say amateurs wing it, professionals plan. They, they just do. Um, here's another one. I, I, I get a question I get all the time, and I'd love to hear your take on it. What about ghosting? Uh, when you know when you've had some conversations with a prospect, maybe you've delivered a proposal to them. Suddenly they stop returning your calls. They stop returning your emails. Is there a way to prevent that? Uh, I certainly have one that I like. And also, what if it does happen? Are there some ways that you recommend for people to reengage with a, a prospect who's gone? By the way, you just named the number one area where most engagement is lost in the sales process. Immediately after the proposal is sent, they go cold, right? I've seen this 100. I've seen it to me. So one of the things that I recognized was if I want to control that, either the way my proposal is set up may be the flaw, right? There's something that I'm not setting up that process properly. So I've taken it. We, we have started to approach this, and we do it with our clients. We're like, hey, if you're going to send a proposal, you better let your customer know you're sending that proposal when you're sending that proposal and find out how much time they need to review it and set a time right then and there for you to review that proposal. Tell your customer there are things in there you may not understand. You're trying, if you're getting other quotes, you may be comparing apples and oranges and you may make the wrong decision. There's also some things I want you to understand so there's no problems in case you decide to go ahead. What's a customer going to do at that point, Jeff? They're going to have that conversation. That's my point to hold engagement, control engagement. The truth is, when we talk about a sales pulse, because I used to sit in a sales man, I'd be, in, you know, I'd be a sales manager in a meeting and I would ask salespeople, you know, so what happened here? 
And they would use the most common phrases like, it's in a good place. Or I get a big, long story that I wish I could just get the trailer rather than the movie version. It's like, when does this end, right? You know, and, and all I wanted was to understand one thing. What was that sales post? What is our next step? And what do we need to do? And it'd be like pulling teeth in a sales meeting to get that. And it wasn't until we started creating and using and understanding the concept that engagement, that touch points itself is a science. Are they hit or are they missed? So when you just said, hey, ghosting, it goes cold. That means I've lost engagement. My A prospect just turned to a C. Now, what do I got to do? Well, obviously, if that happens, I have to find a way to pique your curiosity or create doubt. I have to find a way to be able to send a message to you, get you on the phone, text you and say something that makes you say, oh, wait a second. I better talk to Ed. Yeah, too often the message is, hey, I'm just following up on that proposal. Uh, give me a call, uh, which is a waste of time. And you actually said what I think is the exact right answer. Uh, I call it the BNAS, which stands for best next action step. You never leave a meeting or a phone call without setting up the next meeting or a phone call. I'm I'm not in the proposal business. I'm not. I'm, my job is not writing proposals. Actually, I don't write proposals anymore. My my prospect writes my proposal for, for me. All I have to do is listen to what they want and show them how I'm going to give it to them. Uh, or, well, not necessarily what they want, but what they need. Uh, but but I never end a meeting without setting up the next one. If if a prospect won't give me another meeting, they're telling me something. And what they're saying is, I'm not really that interested, Jeff. Because most people uh, don't have the chutzpah or the cojones to say, no, I'm just not interested. Leave me alone, in whatever words they're going to use. Because they expect guys like you and me are going to fight with them. I'm not yeah. fighting with anybody. I'm not here to... I was married for 10 years. I'm not here to fight with anybody. You don't want to do business with me? That's fine by me. Do me a favor. Tell me. I can, I'm a big boy. I can take it. Because here's what happens when somebody tells me they don't want to do business with me. I'm going to say, I got it. If you ever change your mind, get in touch with me. Don't ever hesitate. I'd love to work with you. By the way, who do you know that might want to work with me? I'm going to ask for referrals. And then I'm going to leave skid marks in their driveway getting out the door because I've got no time to waste. No is a perfectly acceptable answer to me. In fact, I always say, that if yes is right here, no's right below it. Everything else is way down there. Think it over, talk to my partner, take it to the committee. First of all, why didn't I find out in advance that you had to do that stuff? But it's a waste of my time. By always getting the best next action step, you're working with interested prospects because I know in our world, and I say in every world, nobody gives you some of their valuable time and then agrees to give you more of their valuable time unless they're interested. Doesn't mean they'll necessarily buy. But rather than chasing people who are really trying to tell me no without saying the word no, I want to work with interested prospects. That's who I'll write a great proposal for. That's who I'm willing to invest the time with to explore, am I right for you and are you right for me? And if so, let's do something. And if not, it's okay because I'm regularly prospecting. There's plenty more people that I can talk to, just like dating. You might be my new best friend with everything you've said. Um, a while back, I read a post on LinkedIn and a salesperson was saying that a trainer told them, if your prospect isn't crying, you're not making them feel the pain enough. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's enjoyable experience, right? That's what I want to do as a salesperson. I want to come and make you cry. I mean, that's uh, crazy. I, I, wasn't pretty, I wasn't too happy with that at all, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Look, what were we doing dating? There's one thing we do. I remember in sales, when I was doing and I dated the way that I sold, by the way, Jeff, I want to say this straight up. I dated exactly the way I used to sell. I went to dates and they got to learn everything about me and I got to learn nothing about them. 
you know what? One day I learned, I realized that asking questions and listening were two skills more important than anything I've ever learned in selling. I mean, it took me forever to learn that because I, I really struggled with that. And the day that I did, it changed everything. And not only that, I started learning. There's things that I would tell a customer, and I started learning how to ask the customer that very question so they experience that pain through the internalization of what the problem is, right? Like if I tell you how harmful something is, but if I ask you, do you think that is harmful, you are going to internalize that pain. So if if what I'm doing is if I'm telling you about some black mold on a wall, and I'm like, hey, you know, you breathe that in, you're going to get really sick. But if I say to you, hey, what do you think happens if you breathe that black mold in? What starts to happen in that mind of yours, right? It's internalized. If I want you to experience pain, then I need to plan my questions to help you experience that pain, not tell you about it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's my belief is that because salespeople do have such a bad reputation, if I say it, you may or may not believe me. But if you, the prospect, say it, of course, you're going to believe it because you wouldn't say it otherwise. Correct. So to me, the entire, I mean, the, the, there are three keys as far as I'm concerned to selling. Uh, and it's not what most people think, which they think great presentation, strong closing skills. Those are both lovely to have, but not essential. You've got to have great question asking skills, which you just said. You've got to have great listening skills, which most salespeople are horrible at. And you do have to have good storytelling skills. And I find that most salespeople would way rather talk than listen. Any thoughts on being a more effective listener? Because to me, that's crucial. Um, don't rush. I'm going to say it again. I mean, don't rush. Take your time to really establish the plan of sequence of what you're going in for, right? So, I mean, I would literally, I would literally go in when I would go into my my next meeting, and especially when I was trying to address that defect. I call it a defect that I would talk too much. I literally had to start making a plan to write on that note. Don't rush. Take your time. Have fun. Be honest. Listen. Ask questions. In other words, what is my approach here? What am I doing in this meeting? And I had to simplify it for myself because that's that's what students do, right? I mean, if I care, the arrogance of a salesperson is not pretty. Nobody likes it. But a person who comes in that really wants, has a desire to fix the problem. And I tell clients all the time, and this is where I laugh at other sales trainers that just, that love themselves. And I'm going to say this straight up. You are only as good as your client. The work you can do with that client is only as good as that client lets you. So so I'll always say to my clients, listen, if you're looking for the best experience from this, it's going to come from what you put into it. I'm going to give you everything. Right. But if you're not putting anything into it, then you are going to be the problem. What are your feelings about I know most salespeople don't like to do this, but what are your feelings about role playing as a sales management tool and a tool to effectively increase your skills? You you have to be you got to constantly do this. Like I mean, especially look if you if you're not you got to practice, practice, practice. Like you have to practice. Sugar Ray Robinson, you remember that name? Sure. Great boxer had like over 170 fights. Unheard of today, right? Nobody has over 100 fights anymore. This gentleman would spend four to six hours a day shadow boxing. I know this. Because I met a gentleman who trained one way back in the day, an old boxing coach by the name of Joe Haginal, who boxed in Ajax, Ontario, was in the same gym at one time with Sugar Ray Robinson. And he why he said he literally walked up to and Joe said to said to Sugar Ray, you know, I know you're pretty, but why are you in that mirror so long? And he said he literally said because when my game plan goes, my instincts got to be there, my hands got to stay up. 
And like I said, he did this over and over. This is his role playing in front of this mirror constantly, visualizing everything that can happen in the mirror, like literally seeing himself and going through it. And he was one of the best boxers ever in our of our of our era, of any era. So when you think of that, the humility, the humility in role playing, yes, I don't like role playing. Nobody likes to get up in front of a crowd, but it's necessary. And not everything you do in a job is fun. Some stuff is just necessary. Get over it. Yeah, it's like Michael Jordan standing at the free throw line, taking shot after shot after shot. I think he said, you know, I took 10,000 shots so that I could sink more than I don't. Um, Wow. Once again, we're quickly running out of time. We got time for maybe one more question. How about this? Um, Any advice for a seller that when they're in a slump? Yes, stop. Stop. Don't rush. Take your time to figure out what's in your way. What's bottlenecking you? That's that's funny. Corporations will often have bottlenecks all over the place, but they never take the time to, to show their salespeople how to identify when they're in a bottleneck or when there is a bottleneck and what to do. And there's no bottleneck worse than the one that makes a customer suffer. Right. Waiting because you don't know what to do. Right. So taking the time to reset and get you, you know, and identifying what is in your way. And it's usually something simple. And most times it's just because you don't see all the pieces. You need to take your time, set it up, get organized, get restructured. Where's your plan? Usually when you're stuck, it's because you don't have a plan. You don't know your sequence. Where am I going? You said already you are confident when you're prepared, when you have a plan. Right. You give people confidence because they feel prepared and they have a plan. So whenever I'm lost, it's because. Well, usually when you're lost, you don't know where you're going. So take the time to stop, slow down, figure where you're at and what I need to do next. It's really simple. Most answers are simple. Not They're not easy. They're just simple. Yeah, I throw in, you know, speak to someone, whether it's a coach or a trainer like you or, or your manager or just another salesperson. Absolutely. It's hard to get out of your own way. When you're having a hard time, that's the time to say, hey, here's what's going on. Any thoughts? Because quite often, I mean, that's what I love about a pipeline review from a management standpoint, when your when your sales rep says, I'm going to do this next, you might say, that's exactly what you should do. Or you might have some other idea that they haven't thought of because you can think outside their box. So I think it's the same thing here. Uh, we've absolutely run out of time, but uh, how can people reach you? I'm going to share my screen now. How can people reach you, Edward, if they want to work with you or have any questions? Well, they can visit us at edwardhenry.com or economics.com. And you'll see our, our emails there as well, info at edwardhenry.com. Our phone number is 647-725-7575. My profile is on LinkedIn, Facebook, and and we we always get back to our customers or anybody who likes to speak to us very quickly. Edward, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time and sharing generously your brilliance today. Uh, I'll end this as I always do, gang. Please remember that sales is a game of making things happen. So get out there and make sales happen. Thank you, Edward. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Jeff.